1: All right, guys, if we want to make our way in here, we're going to get started. All right, you guys, as you're making your way in, I, I just want to um, I want to draw some attention while you're making your way in that um, there's a lot of guys that are here super early, and man, they're setting up the chairs, and they're setting up Dave and Glenn and those guys, and I hate mentioning names because there's so many other names. But I'd like to give those guys a hand for coming in early and setting that stuff up. Hey, my name's Chris Morgan. and I, I get to have the pleasure of, um, of working with the men's ministry here at Southeast. I wanna thank you guys for um, the ones that reached out to me, whether it's through a text or encouraging thing. It's, it's great to be part of something that is bigger, it's bigger than yourself. And so, man, I, I, I really do appreciate you guys I'm um, doing that. My, tr- my desire is simply this. I want to do life with you. I want to do life with you guys. And as we do life together, we will grow together. But our relationship with Christ will grow together as well. There's a story in 1957. There was an up-and-coming baseball player that played for um, the Milwaukee Braves. He met this other team. The Milwaukee Braves met the New York Yankees, 57 World Series. And there was another up-and-coming guy. Name Yogi Berra. Hank Aaron gets in the box and he's ready. Now, Yogi Berra was notorious for speaking and heckling the guys as they got in the box. And so he gets in the box and Yogi Berra starts saying, Hank, let me help you with that bat, it says Louisville Slugger. He's distracted from the pitch. Pitcher throws the ball, strike one. Hank Aaron steps out, he digs in again. Yogi Berra starts his, his tactics. How can you make it this far in life and not read? Come on, Hank. Turned around, pitcher throws the ball, strike two. Steps out again, comes in. This time, he's not listening, he's not distracted. He's focused on one thing. Pitcher throws the ball, Hank Aaron swings, hits the ball, goes over the left field fence, makes his way around the bases, steps on home plate. He looks at Yogi Bear and he says, Yogi, I didn't come here to read. I came here to hit home runs. And and as I think of that story, we have to understand our why. And our why with men's ministry is simply this, to develop a discipleship-making culture. Whether it's a business, whether it's a sports team, whatever it may be, you have a culture. We want to have a discipleship-making culture. And it's not just a certain type of man. Certain people, it's all of us. Our desire is that every man in here will be a disciple maker. That's our why. Luke 2, 2.52 says, and Jesus grew. One of the things that I hate the most that Tammy and I did not do when we moved is we did not cut out the drywall where we marked our girls growing up. Kicking myself in the rear end for that. Because we marked how they grew in height. That was an indicator. That was something, incredible memories. And as I think about that, that's what we are experiencing. We're watching men grow in their walks with Christ. It's not a microwave. We realize that. It's a crock pot. It's slow cooking. And what we do is that when we become and know our Bibles, we will become competent and we will become more confident. And as we grow in those areas, we will become disciple makers. And, guys, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about this morning. we got a guy that's going to come out. I'm going to ask Wes to make his way out. Give it up for West Wes Sheffield. Wes and um, his, his wife, Megan, how, how many years have you been married? A little over 10. Ten years, wow. A little wow. Over 10 years, yeah. And you have two, th- two children.
0: Two boys, third, third boy coming in July. Wow. Three, three boys.
1: boys. <laughs> uh, give it up for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's coming July. Our,
0: our, our, house, is, our house is full full speed. Wow. Full speed. Okay,
1: well, man. <laughs> hey, I'm excited um, about you. I know you put a lot of time into this. Um, I want to ask you a question though. If, right. you were, if you were to sit with any three people for a meal, who would they be?
0: Any three people for a meal? Oh man. Um, Wow, that's really a hard question. I'm going to say Jesus. I think it would be really interesting for someone who was completely, for someone who was maybe just gripped by the world, someone like that. So, uh, you know who Lane Staley is from Alice in Chains? I would pick Lane Staley. Wow. And probably Billy Graham.
1: Billy Graham. All right, well let me let me let me you, bring that. Didn't
0: the, you think I would say those three people? Yeah, that's that's pretty that's good. What, yeah. That's three
1: good people, man. Okay. Well let me let me let me not dumb it down a little bit, but <laughs> let me make make it a little more manual. <laughs> next Monday's Valentine's Day, what, what kind of guy are you? Are you more like a, uh, a stay-at-home kind of guy? Or are you a fast food guy, or are you like the rubies?
0: Man, I don't know. We've been married we've been married for a minute. I think our last celebration of Valentine's Day was probably like 2013 or 14 probably. So we don't we don't get out on Valentine's Day too much. But if 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 you do, if anybody else does, there's a place in Crescent Hill called Porcini. It's the best Italian restaurant in the whole city. That's your that's your place. Just okay. out
1: of curiosity, how many of you guys are guys like this? It's like, we don't do a whole lot on Valentine's Day. How many? Okay. How many of you guys are like, man, rubies? Anybody like that? Okay. There you go. All right. Well, man, I'm super excited um, about Thanks, you ma'am. taking this next step, stepping up here and sharing from God's word. I'm, I'm going to pray for you. Thanks, man. We're excited about it. Okay. Father, you. I'm thankful for Wes. I'm thankful for the, um, the time that he has um, put in just in your word, um, studying. God, I... I pray that it's a tendency for anyone that stands up to speak. Lord, that we don't have to be motivational. We don't have to be inspirational. God, we just need to be clear. And so, Father, as he stands here and he opens up his word, I pray that he'll hide behind it. I pray that he will tee up great conversations for us at the table. And God, as I said earlier, though we are called, all of us, and that puts a little fear and trepidation in all of us, but we are called by you to be disciple makers. So Lord, as we learn what that looks like, and we all, every one of us, take our next step of faith, may we trust in you and not in ourselves. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Thanks, Chris. I hope I look back on that question, Jesus and Lane Staley and Billy Graham. and <laughs> I hope that's what I say later today. So uh, yeah, good morning. So we're in our we're in our third week of our one at a time series. We're looking at the life looking at the life of Jesus and how he always made time for the one. He was always he was always preaching to crowds and feeding crowds and healing crowds, but he never he never lost sight of individual people. He was very he was very intentional in the way that he pursued other people and their There may be no better example of that than our text this morning. So, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. If you want to read along, you can open up to chapter 7. We're going to have it up on the screen here as well. I'm going to start with verses 11 and 12. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Luke is the only New Testament writer who mentions this event. Nain is never mentioned before, and it is never mentioned again. So what... What exactly happened in this little town that, that God wanted us to know about? First, let's figure out where it is. So Nain would have been really easy to miss, but I think Jesus would have been familiar with it because it was only about seven, eight miles from where he was from, his hometown of Nazareth. So you can see Nazareth here. This is where Jesus is from. Nain, down here this is where our story is but if you look back and this is you can do this on your phone this is kind of cool so if you look back to the beginning of chapter 7 we learn that Jesus came from Capernaum which is right there at the top of the Sea of Galilee Luke 7 1 after he had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people he entered Capernaum so Jesus right before he came to Nain, he was here in Capernaum about 30, 30 miles, give or take, about 30 miles away. So, he performed a miracle there before he walked 30 miles to Nain. Now, those roads, you know, all of these roads here, I picked, I picked the fastest route. This is what we always do, right? These roads, obviously, they didn't exist in the first century. But, you know, with a few breaks, this trip probably took Jesus and his crew about, we'll call it, you know, we'll call it 12 hours, something like that. So... I'm pretty sure, pretty, I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure that no one in here has ever just randomly decided to walk 30 miles for no reason. So, I think it's worth noting that this this wasn't random for Jesus either. And it's interesting to think that a town, you know, this is just a, like a little tiny little town, just a blip on the map. It's interesting to think that a place that was probably overlooked by everybody, it was the destination for Jesus. So, he had he had his sights set on this. And we're going to figure out why. So he was with a, he was with a large crowd of people, like our text says. This was, still, this was still relatively early in his ministry, but he had already shown, he had already shown authority over, over, over sickness, over demons. So I think the people with Jesus, they, they probably knew. They probably knew that he was, he was different. And frankly, I'm not I'm not sure they would have followed him 30 miles otherwise. So the first thing they saw as they approached this town was another large crowd of people. A dead man was being carried out of the town. This crowd was a funeral procession. And the mood probably became really, really somber as they watched this other crowd wail and mourn. So while one crowd probably felt hopeful, the other crowd probably felt hopeless. And in those days, many people were buried just sort of on the outskirts of town. People were buried uh, buried in tombs outside the town. And according according to, to tradition, a Jewish person was was buried as soon as possible after death. Sometimes sometimes just within a few hours. So with this trip taking about 12 hours, give or take, I can't help but wonder if this man who had died, I can't help but wonder if he was still alive when Jesus started walking. Something to think about. Um, we we, We obviously can't know that for sure. But we do know that when Jesus left Capernaum, he knew what he was doing. He was headed to Nain with a purpose. He wasn't concerned with the crowds. He was going to Nain for the one. And the one was a widow. She had lost her only son. At some point, this woman had also lost her husband. And now she would be all alone after losing her son. She had experienced t- tremendous loss. I mean, I think that goes without saying. This, this, this obviously impacted her for the present time, but it, it had huge implications, implications for her future because in that culture... If a woman lost her husband, her, her really only chance of, of survival, her only means of, of, of being supported was, was her son. So her financial security was uh, looking pretty grim at best. The loss of her son meant that she was likely to become poor. She no longer had a provider. She no longer had any means of caring for herself at all. She had lost everyone. She would likely lose everything. This was... This was the lowest point in her life. I mean, what reason did she have to to keep going? What was she, she going to do? A commentator once noted that, that for this woman, the past said, "A dead husband." The present said, "A dead son." And the future said, "An empty struggle for a useless life." I'm not sure that it gets much worse than an empty struggle. For a useless life. And that may have been a reality. But then Jesus showed up. Someone once preached. From, from this stage in fact. That Jesus always showed up when something ran out. No matter if it was food or wine or health or hope. Jesus. There just seems to be a pattern. Jesus always showed up. When something ran out. The Bible shows us that pattern of Jesus having a deep understanding for what a person needed and when they needed it. And he knew exactly what this widow needed. So let's keep reading verses 13 through 17. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer and the bearers stood stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. First and foremost, this, may be, this, this is arguably the most important point of the entire story. Jesus saw her. He saw her. This wasn't just an empathetic glance or maybe a this, wasn't a this wasn't a sorrowful sort of nod of, of, of acknowledgement. He saw her. He saw her. The text, tells, the text tells us that he then had compassion on her. Your Bible translation may say that his heart went out to her. So this is something I really want to unpack this morning. So let's just spend a few minutes talking about compassion. I want to be sure we're all on the same page with the word itself. So with, with sympathy, you, you, feel, you feel for someone. You know, you just, you, you just feel bad. You just feel, you just feel bad for them. With empathy, you feel, you feel with someone. Maybe the same thing has happened to you. It's a little more personal. You, 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 you get it, so you can empathize with the person. But compassion takes it a step further because compassion is present and active. So with that in mind, have you ever thought about how you would respond if someone asked you what God was like? What is, what is God like? I think you could point them to, to our text. I think you could point them to this, to this moment in name. God is full of compassion because it is a part of his character. When God spoke to Moses in the book of Exodus he described himself by saying the Lord the Lord the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. There was a time at work about I don't know it's been it's probably been 5 years ago where we did this we did this team building exercise and each person would Would write their name at the top of this large, large white sheet of paper, tape it, tape it up to the wall. So we all did this, and you know, like I said, I had I had had a few co-workers, so it would just be like, you know, Wes, Crystal, Stephen, Jill, so on and so forth. And there were probably 10 or 12 of these just lined up across the wall. And the point was to stand, You, you, you would start at someone else's piece of paper, and you would write a few character traits about the person from from spending time with them, just from knowing them. You could write a few things that you, you know, that you had experienced or that you had observed about the person. You could write something, you could write something new, you know, so if you were the first person at the sheet, you could write something. Or if you get to a sheet and somebody had already written something, if you agreed with it, you could circle it, you know. So it was a pretty interesting exercise. By the time, by the time we were done, we all had a pretty good we all had a pretty good sample size of how we were known by, by our colleagues. For me personally, like I said, these were, these were people who, you know, they spent a fair amount of time with me. This is, you know, Monday through Friday, so a few hours a day for sure. And it was really interesting to read, to read my piece of paper at the end to, to understand and to learn how, how I was known by people who had, who had been with me. There were things written about me that were... Maybe maybe new to me, some things I maybe would have expected to read. But it was really, it was really interesting. These people had spent time with me, and these are the things that they had written about me. So imagine. Imagine that God has a piece of paper taped to the wall. What would others write about him? Psalm 103, David says, "The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love." Jonah chapter four, Jonah writes, "You're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity." Joel in chapter two: "Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents from sending calamity." Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra writes, But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and did not forsake them. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. James in chapter 5, The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. A little bit of a trend there. These are just a few examples. God is not blowing smoke by calling himself compassionate. These were people who knew God. These were people who had experienced his love and compassion. And the way he describes himself is exactly the same way that others describe him. God is synonymous with these these attributes. And all throughout Scripture, we are reminded of who he is. The compassion we see from Jesus is the compassion that we have seen all along. Jesus is not a softer version of God. He is the same loving, compassionate God about whom we have read since the beginning. And in the New Testament, this is no longer a case of a psalmist or a prophet telling us what God is like. This is God walking around in the flesh, showing us what He is like. His character never, ever changes. I think this is what the writer of Hebrews must have meant when he wrote that Jesus is the same yesterday, today. And forever this is why we have the Bible this is why we're given moments like like this moment in name God is saying I want you to know me I want you to know my heart I want you to understand how I see people there is a thread woven from Genesis to Revelation of God making himself known and that day in name was just another representation of God displaying his character Don't you think, don't you think that God, this, this this, this probably blows me me away more than anything else in this text. Don't you think that Jesus could have could have found a place to sit on the beach in Capernaum and just raise this guy without even taking a step? Of of, of course he could have. He didn't have to go to name. He didn't have to. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus healed a young man by just speaking. So he could have, but he went to name. He didn't have to, but he did. You can't be compassionate from 30 miles away. Remember that compassion is present and active. When I was in, <laughs> when I was in college, I received a frantic, frantic call from my girlfriend. She was freaking out. She's, she's my wife now, so this story has been approved for, for Man Challenge use. So, one day, one day, she was late for an appointment, and as she's driving, all of the cars in front of her suddenly stopped, pulled over. She has no idea what's going on. She calls me, ah, telling me the whole story. She was, she was driving, and everyone just stopped, pulled over. She had, never, she, she had never seen that before. She didn't know what was going on. She gave me a few details, and I, I came to realize that she was pulled over for a funeral, a funeral procession. She had never seen that, so you, you know you've probably seen this. It's sort of it's customary, you know, as a sign of respect, funerals coming, you just sort of pull over to the side. She had never seen that, so <laughs> so Jesus, Jesus sees a funeral procession coming towards him. He doesn't, he doesn't stop. What does Jesus do? Jesus walks right into it, and the funeral stops for Jesus. And what does he say to this woman? It was a very quiet, I can imagine it was a very gentle, do not weep. Do not weep. Um, Jesus, she she has about a hundred reasons to cry, so... Is that really the best is that really the best thing to say right now? But Jesus wasn't being dismissive. He wasn't insinuating that her that her tears were, were, were meaningless. He was comforting his daughter. He cared about her in a way that no one else could. When one of my boys comes to me with a you know with a broken toy or a scraped knee, I tell him the same thing. I said, Oh, buddy, don't, don't cry. And I say that because I'm gonna I'm gonna fix it. And I think I think Jesus speaks from that same position. He he knows that he can fix it. The procession stopped because the text tells us that Jesus touched the beard. Your Bible your Bible may call it a coffin. This was essentially just a a stretcher. Just imagine you mean two, maybe four guys. This is kind of a stretcher just to, you know, used to transport transport a dead body. And Jesus Jesus touched it. It may not seem like a really big deal to us today, but Jewish law declared this completely unacceptable because coming into contact with a dead body made a person unclean for seven days. This is one of, it, it may be the, I'd have to check, I'd have to check my, my Jewish facts, the highest, the highest level of uncleanness Do you, think, do you think Jesus cared about that? He didn't, because compassion, compassion doesn't really care what someone else thinks. And compassion is not afraid to get its hands dirty. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the silence at that point? It's totally, you know... Totally taboo behavior that Jesus is just stopping funerals and touching corpses. Jesus told the mother to stop crying. She did. He told the the procession to stop, and it did. And then Jesus broke the silence by saying, Young man, I say to you, arise. And he did. When Jesus tells a storm to be still, it listens. When he tells a demon to come out, it trembles. When he tells a disease to be gone, it it goes. When Jesus tells death to get up, it is obedient. And I want to be really careful. I I don't want to be too flippant or too passive about what we just read. A dead man came back to life, and when he sat up, he spoke. We're not told what he said, but I'm not sure it's really all that important because we know that his life would be different from this day forward. The first breath of new life can do nothing but give glory, honor, and praise to God. When Jesus raises someone to new life, I think we can say with some degree of certainty that their new life is going to look nothing like their old life. How many testimonies in this room would declare, my new life looks nothing like my old life." Remember the text tells us that Jesus then gave the man to his mother. He Gave him to his mother. You'd think it would be enough. You'd think it would be enough for Luke to tell us that a dead guy just sat up and started talking. But he also says that Jesus gave him to his mother. The crowd thinks Jesus is a great prophet. So what, what do we make of those things? Well. Something to remember when reading the Bible, nothing was recorded by mistake. The Bible is without error, and if God gives us even the smallest detail, then there's a reason. So we look back 900 years before this moment in that little town to the days of the prophet Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah was sent by God to a little town where he met a widow with a son. For the sake of time this morning, I'll just let you know that the young man died. The widow lost her son. Does that sound familiar? The scripture reads, Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. We may overlook a detail like this, but I think the people in Nain that day knew exactly what they had just witnessed. They had grown up hearing about Elijah, and now they were watching the same thing happen right in front of them. They probably thought that God had sent another prophet, but what Jesus was doing was proclaiming that something better had come. Jesus was the fulfillment of what the prophets had preached. The people shouted, God has visited his people. And I'm not sure they even knew just how right they were. God had visited them indeed. Fear gripped them all, and all they could do was worship. Elijah raising a dead man was a sign of something greater. It foreshadowed what Jesus would accomplish in name. Jesus raising a dead man was a sign of something greater. It foreshadowed what he would accomplish on the cross. Because of the cross, what Jesus did for that man physically is the same thing he can do for every one of us spiritually. And he didn't just defeat death one day in name; He defeated death for eternity. And make no mistake, Jesus is still raising people from the dead. I'm looking at a room full of them right now. The ultimate act of love. The ultimate act of compassion. The widow's tears of agony turned into tears of joy. The funeral service of mourning and sorrow turned into a worship service of awe and praise. The town that was an afterthought became the grandest stage for God's glory. The hopeless woman had come face to face with a living hope. Life restored, needs replenished, family repaired, hope renewed. Do you see how Jesus turned things around? It all started because he was intentional to meet someone exactly where they were. It all started with Jesus seeing someone. My son Hunter is five. He made this at church a couple weeks ago. It's a silly little thing, like a wooden stick. He colored it. It's like a clear, a clear plastic plate. Magnifying glass. It says, Jesus, help me see people the way that you see people. I think that can be our prayer. Jesus, help me see people the way that you see people. But how do we live like that? How do we, how do we live like that? How do we really live like that? Jesus commands us, love one another as I have loved you. It's helpful when you're, when you're reading scripture. Sometimes it's helpful to look at what it doesn't say. So Jesus, Jesus does not say, love people who love you. He does not say, love people unless you have to sacrifice something. Loving people one at a time means putting their needs ahead of yours. Loving people one at a time may take you where you would not typically go and loving people one at a time may have you do something you would not typically do. This is the way of Jesus. To live this way means that we must be men of compassion. The word itself is Latin, and it literally means to suffer with. If you look it up right now, you'll see that it's classified as a noun. But the original Greek word in Scripture is a verb, compassion, Is an action. It is not just something you feel, it is something you do. And our lives should be so transformed by the truth of the gospel that we cannot help but take action. This is the difference that Jesus makes. When you are saved by grace, you are changed by grace. When you know Jesus, when you have experienced His compassion, when you understand what He did to get to you, your life just becomes an overflow of His mercy. You can't help but show compassion, the same compassion that he has shown you. And it starts with opening your eyes to whoever God puts in your life. And this is going to look different for every, for every person in this room. I used to work downtown, and if you've ever spent, if you've ever spent much time down there, you know that there's a, pretty, there's a pretty significant homeless population downtown. So I was placed in a position to just meet dozens of people. Every single day, my lunch break became a, a ministry. I met a guy one day sitting on the ground, Fourth and Jefferson. I sat down. I sat down on the ground next to him. His name, his name was Kenny. He's from Georgia. Some of the guys at my table remember him. He used to jump on the, on the Zoom call with us when we were meeting when we were meeting virtually for Man Challenge. He would dial in six in the morning, you know. And it's, was, it was, you know, it's kind of strange. We're all, you know, we've got our coffee and in our, in our house. And then here comes this guy, hood. You can see his skyline behind him. And he's just smoking a cigarette. So he was, he was a little different. He was obviously out of place. But he was made in the image of God just like everybody else. We wanted him there. We cared about him. His life looked different than the rest of us. But he was a child of God just like we were. I used to load my kids in the car. We'd take him dinner downtown. I mean, it wasn't anything, it wasn't anything fancy. We just, we just loved him. Some places give you, uh, Chinese restaurants do this, some Italian places do this. They give you those really nice, you know, the nice containers, the black containers with the clear lid. We would just keep those, you know. It was like a treat to order takeout. I wasn't even excited about the takeout. I was excited about keeping the container. That meant I could just load up some dinner and take it to Kenny. We just, we just loved him, one at a time. Another guy named Booker, Michael Booker. He was from California. He had a he had a really rocky past of family issues and substance abuse. And we became friends. And when, in 2018 we talked we talked almost every single day. He lived he lived under the overpass, uh, I 65 overpass next to Slugger Field. We'd talk about God. Talk about life. He liked <laughs> he liked the BLT from. The BLT from Jimmy John's—he liked that a lot. He would always bring me gifts. He was just excited. To, he was just always excited to see me. He gave me this. He gave me this drumstick. He probably stole it. I don't know. Hard Rock Cafe. He was. He was always thinking about me. He was just. He was. A, he was just a really nice. He was a nice guy. He started learning about Jesus, and he was just. He was just. A, he was a really enthusiastic guy. He got baptized in the Ohio River. One day I found him. He had a. He had a bottle of vodka in his backpack. He was, he was drunk out of his mind at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I prayed over him in the middle of the street. That was the last time I ever saw him. I never had a way to contact him, but I guess about a year later I learned that he, he died from a heroin overdose. Sometimes loving people one at a time is really, really hard but, but I met him right where he was because Jesus would have, would have done that too those are just two examples two examples in my life God created these guys he created them, he loved them and he put both of them right in front of me sometimes sometimes one at a time just means sitting on the sidewalk with somebody sometimes it means eating a sandwich with somebody it always means seeing people through the eyes of Jesus. In the summer of 2020, there were, there were some reports of people experiencing something called compassion fatigue. This is something that's been acknowledged uh, psychologically for decades, but it's gained a lot of traction in the last couple of years because of the pandemic. Many people experience physical and emotional symptoms because of continuously helping others, continuously carrying heavy burdens. Dr. Frank Ochberg is a clinical professor of psychiatry, ps- psychiatry at Michigan State. He calls compassion fatigue a low-level, chronic clouding of caring and concern for others in your life. Over time, your ability to feel and care for others becomes eroded through overuse of your skills of compassion. So in other words, I guess you, you care so much that you stop caring. You carry so much weight that it becomes too heavy. Guess who never gets compassion fatigue? Jesus. He would not say, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. If he could not comfort you... He would not say, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest, if he was incapable of providing rest. We aren't supposed to carry burdens alone. And he has equipped us with brothers to hold our arms up when we need it. Yes, he wants us to love people one at a time, but there may be times when you are the one. Jesus is very clear that sometimes this life is going to be hard, but he offers peace, peace that transcends every trial, you will ever face. I've been talking a lot about I've been talking a lot about showing compassion but I want to take just a few minutes and talk to you about receiving compassion. Now I obviously don't know. I don't know what it's like to be a mourning mother but I can tell you exactly what it's like to be a mourning son. My mom fought breast cancer for for one year. It eventually spread to her lungs before she died in December of twenty twenty. I have never I have never cried so hard in my entire life. But let me tell you something, there is nothing. There is nothing that will sustain you like the compassion of Jesus. At a time in my life when I had every reason to feel hopeless, I was filled with hope because I knew that I wasn't alone. I knew the character of God. I knew that Jesus knew how I felt. And I knew how much he cared. He met me right in the middle of it. I was the one. I was the one at a time. God calls himself compassionate because he is compassionate. So, whatever you may be going through, brothers, I'm here to tell you that Jesus cares. He cares deeply. He is willing and able to offer abundant peace that you will not even be able to explain. And if you don't believe me, then you can ask my mom. This is a text that I got from her about a month before she died. We were talking about Christmas travel plans, and you know when we were going to see each other again. And I was like, you know, we got to talk about Christmas. And she was replying to something else, you know, earlier in the text. And she said, uh, she said, I'm good. I was asking her, I asked her how she was feeling. She said, I'm good. And if not, then I'm going to be better than you. She knew where she was going. This is one of the last things that she ever, ever communicated to me. For the last two weeks of her life, she couldn't eat, she couldn't talk, she could barely breathe. She was lying in a hospital bed as cancer literally suffocated her. But for all I know, for all I know, Jesus spoke to her and said, Do not weep. And I don't, I don't, I don't feel like that's far-fetched at all because... A person doesn't say something like this unless they've experienced the compassion of Jesus. That's just not something somebody says unless they've, unless they've experienced that. So even to her death, even to her death, Jesus met her right where she was. She was the one, one at a time. So remember the list that we looked at? Jonah and David. People testifying to the compassion of God. You can... You can put me and my mom up there, too. And I think the widow of Nain may also have something to say. If you have never experienced the compassion of Jesus, then he wants to meet you right where you are. If you have experienced the compassion of Jesus, then he wants you to share it with the world. You may be thinking, I don't don't know what to do. I don't even know where to start. Start with whoever God puts in front of you. Maybe it's the maybe it's the hostile neighbor. Maybe you have a friend who just lost their job. Maybe you've got a, a cousin who is who's is far from God. Maybe there's a coworker who opens up to you. Maybe there's a single mom who just can't can't make ends meet. Maybe there's a homeless beggar at the red light. God calls different people to do different things, but no matter what, the people in your life are not there by mistake. Jesus intentionally went out of his way to serve someone else. He walked right into an impossibly difficult situation, and he offered peace and hope and compassion. Brothers, he calls us to do the exact same thing. Sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes it's going to be inconvenient. But be obedient when the Holy Spirit pushes you out of your comfort zone and ask Jesus to give you eyes for the one. And he will. Let's pray. Holy Father, I lift up glory and honor and praise just for your relentless compassion. While we were still sinners, God, you sent your son to die the death that we deserve so that we could be saved. We have been made new, Lord, by your mercy and grace. And I pray, Spirit, that you would help us to live that out. Let our lives be an overflow of love and compassion. Jesus, in everything that we do and say, let the world see you. Give us eyes to see people the way that you see people. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.